My name is Joshua Ross, and welcome to the 17th episode of the Entrepreneurship at DU podcast. A lot of the founders we meet with have the traction problem. Either they're too early in their product, they haven't developed a product, they don't know where to build traction. Building a business is hard, and at times it can be lonely. It is a gift to have people like Rob McIntosh and Johnny Boyarski, whose goal is to support founders as they develop their idea, find product fit, grow their business, and eventually raise capital. There's no idea that comes to us that we don't want to understand as deeply as we can. Literally Helping Startups was founded by Robert and Johnny because they believe there's a lot of room for improvement in the venture capital space and that startups need help with no strings attached. Here's my interview with Robert and Johnny. Rob and Johnny, welcome to the Entrepreneurship at DU podcast. I appreciate you joining us today. I was really excited that you guys were going to pop onto the podcast, especially after you joined us at our accelerator program over the summer and uh, had such an amazing impact on our students. So let's get rolling. I just want to start off by asking a very, very simple question that might have a long answer. But explain uh, to us the name of your business, Literally Helping Startups, and your website tagline, which I love, We Help Startups, No Strings Attached. Yeah, so Johnny and I both were, were founders ourselves. We worked in VC. We worked in the accelerator space. Um, and we kind of just realized that um, there's a, it's, it's a little bit of a, a predatory environment if you're especially an early-stage founder. Um, it's hard to navigate. There's usually some caveat to joining the, the accelerator or, or some type of group, um, whether that's giving up equity, um, having to pay a, a, a large fee. And so we were talking about the name, like this is probably a little over a year ago now. Um, and we're like, what if we just call it literally helping startups? And we, we thought it was stupid at first, but then we're like, really, what if we just called it that? And so we, we kind of rolled with it because we wanted to be uh, upfront and transparent with our, our mission and our, our, our vision. And, and that's what we're sort of portraying quite literally. Um, and yeah, no strings attached is, you know, you talk with us, we're not going to charge you some backend fee and say, Hey, we're not going to work with you anymore. And, and we just wanted to be very clear with the, the founder space because Johnny and I had been, been through it ourselves. Um, you know, jo Johnny and I both lost hundreds of thousands of dollars in our first, um, you know, iterations of our, our startups that we've done. And we've seen it happen in, in, in the accelerator and startup ecosystem. Yeah. I also, I gave Rob a really hard time about the, uh, about the name cause I thought it was kind of stupid. <laughs> and I was like, all right. And he was like pretty, he was kind of, he got more convinced. And so as time went on, I was like, we'll just leave that as a placeholder. And then when, when we went to like incorporate and create the website, I was like, all right. Yeah, I was like, the name never ends up mattering. And in a world where everything is sort of like a, a sexy, like Uber or Airbnb, and it's got some like rhythm and twang to it. We were like, this is as direct as we can be with our name. And so I think that it usually gets a chuckle. And, and most of the founders we meet with kind of say something that's super validating to both the name and the idea of what we're doing, which is they'll be like, what, what, what's, what's the catch? They'll be like, when, when are you going to charge me? What, what's the deal? And we're like, there's nothing. It's like we make investor intros to founders that are doing the, the right things. We you know, introduce people to potential partners, potential clients, um, just because we realize how difficult it is. And to sort of sum up, a big reason why we're doing what we're doing, it's, I would say that, you know, if a 30-minute phone call with Rob or I 
can save you $50,000 or get you a $50,000 investment, uh, I'll take that any day of the week to help other founders. Mm-hmm. So you are helping startups in the startup space mm-hmm. to create businesses, to create value, mm-hmm. to generate revenue, mm-hmm. eventually create profit, right? Mm-hmm. But you are not doing that yourself. So what is your business model for, and I got to keep saying it, literally helping startups? We, we started this with just the, the concept of providing value for free, and we would kind of stumble across, upon business models. What we ended up finding was a lot of founders started asking us for more help and wanted, wanted us to provide more deliverables. And this has sort of transitioned us into uh, a business model of some sort where founders can say, hey, I need help with X, Y, and Z. We want you on board, and, and you know, we're, we're willing to you know, compensate you in some type of way, whether that be equity or, or finance or or a, a, some form of financing, and, and we, we make sure to be very upfront and clear with what we can do and what we can't do. And so we kind of went into that, and I, I always give the example. It's, it's sort of like the, the In-N-Out menu, if you've ever eaten at In-N-Out. They have this whole secret menu in the, in the background um, that you can order from, and we, we never push founders into any you know sort of uh, cash compensation with us or anything like that. It's purely if they want to if they need assistance, because like Johnny was, was saying, we, we can help them, you know, in those fractional positions uh, where they're trying to operationalize or something like that. And then, you know, we got a, we got a lot of outreach. And I, I think I was telling you before this, you start, you know, building a community, having a little bit more of a, a one-on-one approach. So uh, we'll always meet with any founders for free. Um, that will never change. Um, but we're kind of stumbling a, across uh, a business model that founders want more from us and we're, we're trying to trying to provide it. So... Awesome. Uh, so how did the two of you meet? Um, I'm very curious to hear that story. And along those same lines, why are you two the ideal candidates to literally help startups? Johnny and I met through a failed accelerator that we had worked at. Um, we kind of started becoming friends. We're both very avid chess players. Uh, right now, I'm, I'm the better chess player as of yesterday. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> Uh, that's we started just talking. We started becoming friends. We started, you know, talking about sort of the concepts of the and the philosophy of the startup space right now, um, and realized we had a, a lot of agreement and um, realized that there's a lot of holes um, within that. So, uh, Johnny, you have, you have any color to yeah. that too of like what you thought of me from a, a perspective? <laughs> yeah, I think that Rob and I really just see eye to eye on startups and the space and. You know, I think that the the one reason that we are actually the best people to to do this is because I think Rob and I have actually worked with thousands of startup founders over the last three to four years and have been founders ourselves. Hmm. And so I think that when you put that together, it's really, really difficult to have anybody that has that kind of experience just because of the sheer amount of time that it takes to work with that many startups. And so... Whether you're a biotech startup that's trying to get past their first stage of FDA trials, or you're a social media startup that's raising a Series A, or you're just two guys in an idea trying to figure out what to build, um, Rob and I have seen it all. We've seen everything, and we've lived it. And so I think that there are very few people out there who have worked closely with that many startups. And, and I think that you know we just we've seen the trends and we've seen what works and what doesn't work. And we know the tools that are changing. And so when it comes to helping people, you know, when somebody approaches me and says, Hey, I want to make an app that allows you to split the tip. 
Rob and I can be like, we've literally been pitched this idea 25 times. We've seen 15 people try to build it. Five of them have, you know, brought it to market and failed. So let me tell you, it's going to be really difficult. And I think that we also have a sort of candor, a radical candor, if anybody's read that, that book and those ideas, which is we'll be honest because we don't want people to waste their time or money because uh, we know how precious those things are. We think that the ecosystem could be flawed in a major way with only, you know, with 90% of startups failing. Um, and we saw that that huge gap. And it's it's like either the, the structure and the education which is being taught is like is allowing entrepreneurs to enter the ecosystem too early or they don't understand what it takes. Um, and we might not, we're not startup savants. Like, yes, we have a lot of experience and worked with a, a lot of founders, but I think more so we have a, a willingness to change it because I, I think not to sound too corny, but if we, you know, increase the success of, of startups, even one to 2% throughout the world, this, this has a, a vastly great uh, economic impact and, and societal impact that I don't think a lot of people are talking about. They just assume it's hard and, and that's it. And it's like, well, you know, with AI or, you know, we're trying to get on Mars, like there's gotta be other reasons than it's just hard at this point. So, yeah. I love that approach, and I and I love what you're doing, um, Johnny. Though I, I I have to you know push back a little bit. Don't deny the world another split the tip app, okay? <laughs> Let it get out into the it's universe. Great. Well, it's funny. One of the joking things that I I threw Rob's way recently was every time I get pitched to start up an additional time, the amount in revenue and hundreds of thousands of dollars goes up before I think that it'll be real. So if I get pitched the idea ten times, they have to have a million dollars in revenue before I'm like, this is this is gonna this is gonna be the one that takes off. I like the way you. Not think to so. say that it's a bad idea. It's a perfect example of one that I actually think there's a problem. I think there's a solution. It could be value add. The difficulty is how are you gonna make it convenient enough, and how are you gonna pitch it to the right people so that you can actually get users. That's a that's a very good point. I want to go back to a thing that Rob you said and uh, talk a little bit about community. You're so you're building a community, and that word gets thrown around quite a bit. And there's a lot of different kind of ways people look at community. What are you all doing with community? And uh, can you provide a little bit of color on that? Yeah, um, Johnny can add his thoughts too. But uh, we wanted to remove a degree of separation between all the. Uh, fragmentation between the ecosystem. You know, generally when you're a startup, um, I, you know, especially if you're idea stage, it's like, well, shit, where, where do I go? Um, and most uh, founders default and they Google it, they ask their friends, they stumble across an, an accelerator and all these, all, all these other kind of methodologies that are disconnected. And let's say you make it out of the pre-seed stage and you get into, you know, uh, a seed stage, and then you're you're talking about investment and and all these other kind of stages. Even in the the pre-seed stage, and then you're like trying to interact with investors. You're trying to outreach to investors. And if you're a first-time founder, it's like, well, how do I build a data room and all these pitch decks and all this other kind of stuff? How do I pitch right? How do I tell my story right? Um, and then you start talking about you know product market fit and all this other kind of stuff. So it's very convoluted and hard for somebody that's not in the space or ha hasn't you know gone through that trial by fire. And uh, that was the, the purpose of the community is start to provide these resources, um, connect other founders with, you know, each other to know that their pain is shared in this process um, or success for that matter. Um, and, yeah, so that's that's what we're, we're trying to accomplish there. So who is the ideal founder for uh, literally helping startups? Are these founders that are at the idea stage? Are they at the prototype MVP stage? Do they have to have 100 paying customers, people using it? 
it's um it's really everybody um you know i i have been working with somebody that was doing tens of millions of dollars in revenue and had some really really big clients and they were looking for you know some venture debt and so i worked with them to help find people that might provide that and and you know if to anyone listening if you do know companies that are you know doing five to ten million dollars in revenue don't think that they're too late for us we're happy to help and i think everybody and then we also work with you know two people who like got an idea yesterday and just want to talk through it and i've never built a startup and so because rob and i have spent so much time working with different founders we um you know we are happy to meet with anybody and and the biggest thing that we try to do and where we think that we're really different than everybody else is we meet people where they're at and you sometimes have these founders that come in and they are so buttoned up and they've got the best board of advisors that you could have a perfect pitch deck, great storytelling, great revenue and traction. And for those founders, I'll just introduce them to investors in my network. And then we'll have people who are just getting started and they need some help on the product management side of things. And they need some help on the go to market strategy and they might not know as much about everything you need to do. And so we're happy to kind of meet people where they're at and pr- provide them information, contact resources, um, sort of supplement their and knowledge I, and skill sets. And to, and to his point, I think it's a common misconception, the experience of the founder, let's say, from the pre-seed to Series A stage. It's like you built an idea, you have some sort of traction, and then you get into seed, you you raise you raise some money or, or whatever you do, and you hit some type of scalability, and then you're at your, your Series A, potentially. And if you're a first-time founder, it's it's not like overnight you just became a, a genius at operating a biz- business and, and doing all these things and realizing your holes and having the emotional intelligence. So um, in the startup world, you feel like a Series A is pretty advanced, but you know there's a lot of founders that are in you know doing millions of dollars of revenue that maybe started to find their product market fit and hit scale, but it's like, well, what the hell do I do now? Um, how do I manage this? Like, I don't know investors at this this higher check size level, or VCs for for that matter. And so, um, I still think there's kind of a misconception between the the education and knowledge between all those those gaps and stages. So along those lines, then, what are some of these common challenges when entrepreneurs approach you? Some of the things that they're struggling with, trying to work through, um, and how do you guide them? That's a tough one because we we get a mix of I mean I, I I would say common challenges is is you know is the traction element especially for pre-seed and 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 seed uh, stage companies Series A you're looking at more scalable issues but a lot of the founders we we meet with have the the traction problem either they're too early in their product they haven't developed a product they don't know where to build traction they're not thinking more granularly um, with their like who they're outreaching to. You know that that's probably more on the the product just startup side of things. I mean, we I, probably a lot of our calls are just how do I get in talk, contact with investors? Like how do I reach out to investors? Where do I engage them? At this point, because there is a a mentality out there that I I think is flawed too, is where they have to go out and start raising money to be successful. And I don't think that has pushed the founder enough to actually develop a product. So are there disconnects when these founders approach you? So they believe that they're in a certain stage of their startup journey and where they actually are and what the reality is could be completely different. Has that happened to you? Yeah, I I think that the biggest thing that happens there is the amount of people that think that they're deserving of VC investment is absurd. Um, and you get founders who are like, oh no, I've, I've built the next big app, the next big thing. Like, do you understand the vision behind what I'm building? And I'm like, I do, this could be huge. And you've proven none of that. And so I think that it's just that kind of 
open and honest conversation of saying like, what is it, Rob? 0.05% of startups end up getting VC funding. So yeah. just know that for every 200 startups that, no, 2,000 startups that get started, um, one is going to get VC funding. And so it's like so much of the advice out there is aimed at founders that are raising. And it's like, guess what? That's most likely not going to be you. And so I always try to set milestones so that people can understand um you know, what they need to do um, in order to get VC funding. And so I'll usually say, like, hit this number in revenue, hit this number in clients, hit this number in month-over-month -month growth, and that will excite, you know, VCs. Um, but so many people out there just think that because they have a good idea that they should get, you know, $500,000 to go build their startup. It's probably a misconception of the, 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 the founder, too, to really push themselves to develop something. They think because they have a good idea that, you know, you know, in a lot of circumstances, I mean, they, they get the hopeful, they get this hopeful sense because you see like, uh, I forget whatever product that was like ex Google employees, like raise like $200 million. And they're like, well, I can just raise my $500,000 round. And so they have this misconception of like what it takes to get there. And I don't think it pushes them hard enough to figure out intuitive ways to start building their product, how to build traction, how to validate their, their market. And so they jump to these things because it's kind of what is taught in the, the ecosystem and the accelerators. I mean, most accelerator programs, it's like, well, we'll help you build your product, but at the end you have this pitch day and like you might get investment and so this is like always toted or held as the like the highest achievement in in these earliest stages and i don't th and for especially early stage founders i don't think it pushes them far enough to find uh creative ways to develop their product on their own because raising money and diluting yourself is, is great but there's plenty of companies that don't do it um and then you know you have people on your team that you know, they say the traditional VC anywhere lasts anywhere from five to ten years on in your company, and that la and that lasts longer than the traditional American marriage. So you have to kind of like look at it. I'm going to marry these people for the next ten years, and you don't want to get a divorce essentially. Yeah, it's a good point. And raising money, you're also spending a lot of time focusing on raising money and not on building your product. And you talk about the dilution, plus you're bringing in other people into your company that can potentially essentially tell you what to do as well. So those are all things that are important. The one that I always find interesting, and I talk to a lot of startups as well, is, hey, before I meet with you, you have to sign this NDA. I'm like, a classic. I'm like, no, I'm not signing the NDA, and I'll give you 18 reasons why. Yeah, yeah. And then the second one is when they sit down with me and they say, I need to get a patent. Yeah. I need to get a patent. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, no, you don't. I uh, I graduated from law school a few years back. Didn't take the bar, so none of this is legal advice. But that being said, um, I'm I'm happy to weigh in. Which is, I've never seen an NDA litigated. Um, I've probably signed a hundred myself. I collectively in my network probably know people that have signed millions, and I've never seen one litigated. And the reason being is it's so hard to prove that this was your idea and that you disclosed the information. And the other thing, too, is when you see thousands of companies, good ideas become way less valuable because everybody has good ideas. And so, you know, you get to a point where it's almost like this sad maturing of realizing Santa's not real, where you, like, wake up and you're like, hold on, a good idea isn't all I need to build a company. And so once you hit that point, you realize that patents also aren't as valuable or people want to trademark. And I almost always say that unless this is research coming out of a university that you can show me five peer review, you know, journal articles on it, um, or you built this like in a lab, um, 
you know, or you're somewhere in deep tech, a patent won't be valuable uh, and it's not going to protect you. And it's be so much better for you to get $100,000 in revenue than it ever would for you to, you know, go get a patent. Um, and so it's like most startups out there think that it's some sort of, you know, shield against other companies that might try to take their idea. But everybody who's been involved in the space will probably have had an idea that somebody went and built and executed better. And you'll realize how sort of meaningless good ideas are. Yeah. And we kind of spoke to this earlier as I think it kind of dilutes the harder element of this and that's building a brand. Because if you have an effective product and effective brand, a patent's really not, um, you know, unless you're in, in tech or, or healthcare or, or something like that. But if you're just building a standard product, people are going to buy your brand, not, you know, not the the, the patent um, from from that side of things. And so I think that's the harder element to achieve. It's like, yeah, you can go get that piece of paper, but that doesn't mean you're going to attract customers to your, your to buy your product. It might be patented, but who cares if nobody's using it? Um, and so I think a lot of maybe founders use this as a way to like mitigate that process because they can say, and, and it could be potentially an investor thing too. It's like an early traction thing to say, yeah, we have a patented piece of whatever. And that, that in their eyes is good. And I think that's a good thing to have, but, um, the founder shouldn't negate like, well, how are we going to achieve customers once we have this patent? How are we going to build that brand that makes people stay consistent? So, yeah. And Johnny said it too. It's all about execution. Yep. There's millions of ideas out there. Can you execute? Yep. And I believe a lot of times people look at that idea of a patent. It's almost product validation. Yeah. Well, the patent office, you know, approved it, so it's validating it. But go look at the patent office and go do a patent search. I think there's one or two patents in the patent office that never made it to market. So. Well, and and we always kind of think that, you know, competition is not necessarily a bad thing. It sort of validates the market, right? So if you have a patent for something that's never been patented, it's like, well, what, why? Like, am I that big of a genius? Which you're probably not. Um, or did I, or, you know, is it not useful? And so, like, when a lot of founders get discouraged about those things, it's like competition is actually a good thing, you know? So from Yeah, there. and I, I, I spoke recently about that idea, which is just, like, you need to know as a founder how common your idea is. Because if you're pitching a VC who's heard this idea 10 times or maybe even 20 times or even 10 times in the last two months, you need to speak to why you're different. Uh, and there's that story about Dropbox where they showed up and they walked into the VC office when they were pitching and they were like, and the VCs were like, is this another file sharing site? And they were like, yep. And they were like, but why don't you use the existing ones? And they were like, because they ba they're bad. They suck. And the Dropbox guys were like, we're going to build it better. And they knew that this had been tried before. And I think that if you know that this has been tried before, um, that's a good sign and you need to just be better. And so I think that founders need to be the most educated on their space and have heard of all the startups that failed. Uh, and then if, if you're sort of in that middle ground where maybe they've been pitched it once or two, one time or two times, um, you know, you need to both speak to why you're different, but also why there other people aren't trying it. And then if you actually are novel, which does happen and is rare, you need to speak to why other people haven't tried it or maybe what other people are missing. But you need to address that um, because otherwise you're going to come off as naive. Yeah, so that, that's a very, very good point. And this is an area with startups that I, I meet with quite a bit. And areas that I believe they struggle with is, A, defining their target market. Mm. And then the second is market validation. Mm. I don't believe that they spend enough time and diligence around these two areas. Mm. And they're, they're very separate in concept, but they're also requiring you to really dig deep and also put yourself out into the universe and make yourself uncomfortable. 
Yeah, market validation is a, a weird, uh, an interesting thing too, because I think generally um, the traditional methodology and what's taught is pretty much useless. I, I don't know if that'll be controversial or not, but like the Tam Sam Som thing is just really useless for founders, um, you know, in the early stages because I don't think it gets granular enough in them understanding their their market. Like, okay, you're Tam, you you understand, you have a big market, great. That's pretty much what it's useful for but where are you meeting your your potential client i think there are some it's like tam sam some ev evg or something it's like evangelicalist or or i, f I forget what the the early stage f name for it was but um you want to find where your your potential customer is at the most painful point in that that journey to sort of build um early traction and so a lot of founders aren't necessarily taught that they they start with their tam sam som and they're like we're going to target you know these types of coffee shops or whatever and they don't really develop anything further than that and then when they when they start to not get any traction or their their customer it's not panning out the way they want then they start to look at other methodology other reasons to engage people so this is something that exists quite commonly um, and something we talk to a lot of founders about especially building traction is how you know getting super niche you know, getting from that zero to a thousand users, um, looking at the market from a different perspective. Um, you know, what are you creatively bringing to the table? Like all these elements that help you get that that market validation um, is 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 kind of you know, and I think the Tam Sam Som thing is uh, investor metric, and I don't think it's a founder metric. You know, it's like the the investor wants to see the the market is big enough and it's growing. How you executing at it a little bit and 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 sort of how to how you refine that. But for the founder, it's it's almost meaningless because you're not engaging in the 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 process to you know engage the early the early customer, the early early client, whatever it may be. So how do you help startups uh, with the target market and understanding who their target market and potentially their target audience is? What are some of the tools? How do you walk them through that path? Because a lot of times it's like, well, everyone's going to use our product. Yeah, that's that's a common common thing as they they think about the grandiose vision of their idea. Um, and we, I was just speaking with a founder yesterday. He's building some sort of like AR um, virtual reality like questing thing where you could go to any location. You could go through like a, a quest at any location. And he's thinking like we could we can change everything. We can like do escape rooms. We can do all this stuff. And it's like well, nobody really wants to use that. And when you're speaking to like an investor or a common person, it doesn't really appeal to them. So it's like where can you you meet a a, a, pen, a potential valid client? And so we got into tabletop games and like D and D, and we we sort of had this philosophy that um, you know your your potential technology could remove like put tabletop games into the next iteration of technology so you can start interacting in the real world as opposed to in the past when like um, Dungeons and Dragons was created this is in the 80s the 70s um, I actually don't know when it's creative I'm assuming the 80s but um, it's like you can you can approach it that way to a community that has a, a, a vast number of following and so I think for us we walk them through like really getting into the science behind what they're doing and realizing whether it's a, a real problem um, and like we kind of spoke to before, whether the the idea is painful enough to change. Like Johnny mentioned, most people don't download apps. So a lot of founders um, in early stage companies don't account for that uh, change of pain cost. Like, is it painful enough for 
somebody to want to actually go and use it. And generally, it's not. And you, I think you have to think about that from the app perspective, the, the SaaS perspective, um, and just, just products. Like People are somewhat creatures of habit, so they're going to continue to do the things unless you're pushed out of it. Um, and so that's that's kind of how we help them in the early stages that we see the most often is just, um, you know, getting a little more focused, uh, you know, microscopic with them. I think that the a huge part of the problem of the startup world is how we glamorize it. Um, and people read success stories, right? Atlassian just acquired Loom for $975 million. Somebody on Shark Tank, you know, in a four-hour conversation gets, you know, a million dollars to go build their startup and then for 20%. And it's negotiated all fun and sexy. And the reality is it's never like that. And I think that if there's anything that, that you know, people should take away from Rob and I's work is it's going to be hard. Make sure that you have the team resources and knowledge to do it well. And if you aren't the person who's super diligent and, you know, creative, either know that this might not be a good path for you or build a team around your weaknesses. And so, and talk to people who have done it. That's the other thing I can't stress enough. Like people who have done it never say it was easy and it always takes twice as long, costs twice as much and you have half the, the traction that you thought you were going to have. And so just make sure that you are aware of that going into it because um, otherwise you're just going to be disappointed and waste a lot of money and time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think Shark Tank has done a nice job of, uh, you know, kind of, uplifting the whole startup community. But to Johnny's point, I think it also is a misconception about uh, a lot of times of how companies get funded and, and the struggles and the, and the pain and the difficulty around building a product and, you know, finding, defi finding product fit. And yeah. that, that's an area I want, I want to talk to you both about yeah, um, is how, how, first of all, Johnny, how do you define product market fit and why is this so important for startups? Yeah, I, I think that there's a few signals. If you're in any B2B SaaS company, I would say that a good sort of heuristic for product market fit is when you start getting clients from your clients. So like if somebody was like, oh my God, what they built made my life so much easier. So I called my friend who's in the similar space at another company and they're now using it and they love it uh, and they want to meet with you. Um, if you're in that sort of, you know, direct to consumer SaaS space, I think that the indication is when your organic users outnumber the ones that you maybe know personally or that sort of like founder-led growth. Um, but I mean, really, it's it's so hard to tell what product market fit means for different companies. Uh, you know, you might have a deep tech company that's in bio or pharma or aerospace that won't have product market fit until they get FDA approval or they, you know, get their first government contract and it could be three years from now. And so, you know, if you're if you're in a space where people can buy it or use it pretty quickly, then you need to start seeing the signs that this is growing on its own because you've just built something amazing. And I think a good um, metric for that too is retention. When you start to retain your your users, obviously, um, there's a popular term called cohort retention, where you sort of take a batch of you know a, a certain amount of users. Let's say you're outside of the SaaS space, and or you, I mean, I, I guess SaaS is a good example, and you kind of take a how many people bought your product during this time. And then you calculate from a month, a week, how, how much they're using and what their retention is. And um, just from the founder's perspective, from my perspective, when I, when I think, and maybe founders will resonate with this, like 
product market fit happens when you're when you feel like you're not pushing the boulder uphill and it's going downhill and you're trying to catch it. And so you're you're dealing with um, similar problems like you know how the hell do we do this? How do we manage these things? But those are good problems to have. And so much of the entrepreneurial grind and the founder grind is like you just feel like you're pushing something and it's just like hard and you're you're trying to grind uphill. But then when things start to go downhill a little bit, and you're you're trying to figure out those problems, I, I think. Um, you're, you're starting to get that product market fit, so. Yeah, and listener, uh, SaaS, by the way, is software as a service. Think of kind of these cloud applications that you use that you access on your laptop or phone, and it's saved up into uh, uh, the cloud. So um, that, that's an example of SaaS. And you're right with product market fit. It's pushing that boulder up or, you know, pushing this product into the market and saying, why doesn't the customer understand this? Why don't they realize how awesome we are? Yeah, yeah. And then when you start to see that change, they're starting to pull it from you and saying, this is great. We'd love to see this. And as Johnny said, we're telling our friends about this. Yep. They're buying it. And all of a sudden, it's a very, it's a huge change in the way in which your products viewed in the market. Yeah, I agree. And it's, and it's somewhat of a, a relief too. And so like, um, it's not so much joy. It's like, we've been, you know, pushing this thing for, at least from my experience, it's like, you, we've been pushing this thing for years now, and we're finally getting some monicum of traction and and it's like a relief that finally we're we're on to something so um and then if you have like the organic growth like you're like you're talking about like johnny was saying it's it's um it's it's kind of the cool part of the the experience i guess so as you as the customer goes along this journey to find uh product market fit and uh, really they keep iterating on the product right they uh they're they've identified their target market and they keep you know testing that and they test out their messaging and all these things that they're along that journey. They're also collecting feedback from their customers and these early adopters. And you talked about it, uh, evangelists of their products. As they start to get this feedback, uh, this primary research, how should they think about using this feedback? And it depends on the early stages. If you're trying to validate your idea, I think you just skip sort of the the friends and family. Um, your, your friends generally don't know what they're, they're talking about. They have their best interests at mind in your family. Like my mom will always tell me I have a great idea regardless of what it is. She loves me and she's like, you're doing great, honey. Um, you know, keep it up. Um, and it could just be the worst idea in the world. And so uh, a lot of, a lot of uh, you know, people say go to friends and family and I don't necessarily agree. I mean, maybe for early checks to develop your product and, you know, maybe I can get a check from my mom to, you know, develop something. But um, as far as her telling me the quality of my idea, it's a completely different thing. Um, and then as far as getting user feedback, it's, it's meeting the, you know, the, the, the potential product or, or customer where they're at, you know, whether this is online, offline, um, you know, engaging yourself in those ecosystems to know whether that feedback's rational. Um, Johnny always brings up the quote of, you know, Henry Ford saying, if I ask my clients, you know, what to build, they, just, they would say f faster horses. And, uh, Steve Jobs said, you know, if you ask your clients what they want, um, by the time you build it, they'll want something else. Um, and so you kind of have to understand and saturate yourself in, in the environment, I think, the most to understand what is relative, what can you do at your current capacity um, to execute on in the short term to gain traction. And so um, I think immersing yourself, understanding where that those opinions are coming from and whether it's valid to your long term roadmap. Um, and more importantly, can you execute on in the next, you know, six to 12 months without it changing? So you have to understand whether your, your, you know, your, your potential customer is, is valid in their opinion too, um, which they, which they probably are in most cases. Yeah. Um, I think Rob and I 
have maybe slightly different family upbringing because I think my, my, my family is a little bit more critical of the ideas that I have. Um, you're not as loved as me. Supportive. Supportive. He, but, I'm but the favorite still, child. Uh, you're, you're not the favorite child in your family. That's the difference. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think that the reality is most people who know an industry don't understand tech and startups, and most people who understand tech and startups usually don't know your industry. And so I think that it's good to go to people who understand both. Um, and I think that that's sort of where Rob and I have forced ourselves um, to sort of understand. And one of the things I, I think is the coolest about, you know, my career so far is that there's no idea that comes to us that we don't want to understand as deeply as we can. And so whether that's somebody trying to create a 3D printed, you know, kneecap or a metal, a 3D printed metal kneecap for prosthetics or for, you know, replacements. Rob and I will try to understand the best we can about what are the success rates, what are the problems, what are the sizing options right now. Uh, if you've got a company that's a deep fintech SaaS play, what does that include? You know, what what are the parts of it? Can I understand this? Do I need to call somebody that I know that works at a bank? Um, so I, I think that it's it's you know when it comes to getting advice from people, most people don't see things holistically. Uh, and with with the risk of sounding self-aggrandizing, I think that Rob and I have just worked, you know, with so many companies over the years and with so many industry experts um, that we've sort of picked up on an intuition and where we don't know, we're always willing to dive in more. But I, so. I think what you bring up is too is an important point is with the founder is it's like you need to be really an expert in understanding your industry so you know where those opinions and and it's common and I think it's common for like founders to be a, a jack of all trades and master of none. And I really think this is kind of a wrong mentality. Like really understand your your strengths and and start to become an expert in your your area um, as opposed to you know doing everything if you're going to enter into a product like um, Johnny and I are saying we try to understand everything about it and you have to understand everything about your product so when somebody does give you an opinion you could say well that's a valid idea but for xyz reasons we can't do that right now or it's not going to work they haven't thought through it and that's and that's most of the process and you have to have that that knowledge or that experience to connect the dots or not connect the dots because it could lead you down a path you don't want to go so that's very difficult, though, and takes some mat maturity to actually listen to people give you feedback. And your your first inclination is like, these are people, these are my customers, they're using it, they're telling me how they would use it, and not to immediately start going down that path and making that change and making an iteration and keeping to your roadmap. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think a, a common example of that was um, like Pinterest, and he you know, would send it to his friends and family. They're like, I don't get it. Um, and, uh, you know, if he had, he have, he would have, if he stopped there, he would have just iterated the, the product differently, right? And to, for, to, I, I think he said he hung out with a bunch of tech bros or, or something. And so they're just like, we don't get it. We don't want to pin things. And, um, and so he, he felt that there was something there and he continued to iterate into that market. And he found that, you know, it was uh, 30 year old women bloggers that it was his early stage <laughs> traction users. And I've used this example before, but it's like you, you have to understand like where the need, the gaps are in your product. And, and it's a little bit hard, especially if you're a first time founder, cause you're like, well, maybe it's not that good. And you're going to have that, you're going to have that your entire, even when you're series A, you're going to think your product's probably not that good. Cause I, I think from my perspective, you see everything that's wrong with your your idea, especially if you understand it, like you understand where the competition could destroy us, like where it's going to fail, like how things are going to be perceived. So that like you just have to kind of get used to that, that feeling, in my opinion. But um, understanding it, taking with a grain of salt and knowing where to, you know, put like make a stand is I think is, is critically important, too. So.
So uh, I want to pull on that thread a little bit in terms of the idea around it doesn't always work, right? And you got to keep trying. But how do you help these entrepreneurs navigate failures or setbacks, which every entrepreneur is going to go through? Any entrepreneur that says that it was perfect and it was an easy road is lying. You realize that it's hard, but you don't realize how hard in the sense that you are going to stress the relationships with loved ones and your friends. You are going to stress your um, bank and you are going to stress yourself. You're going to fight with your your co-founders. You're going to kind of go through all this adversity. And, and so a lot of people think it's hard, but it's like, you know, it's it's that hard, though. It's like you're trying to manifest something new into the, the world, essentially, like build something and that hasn't been built and put that into the world and hope people use that. And that I think that... Uh, you know, requires a, a lot of mental fortitude. And the most common thing that I kind of realized when I was starting my first thing, and I was reading a, I forget which book it was, but it was by like the a, a Adobe co-founder. And he, he was talking about all the adversity they were going through to, to build Adobe and all this other kind of stuff. And I was like, huh, they, so other people do experience this. So for founders, it's like you, every other founder's Going through what you're going through and understanding you're you're not alone in that feeling is was was like pretty uplifting for me. It's like you know you just gotta kind of push through this. But um, if you haven't heard that or you haven't you know seen that or read that, uh, it's kind of hard just to intuitively be like, well, am I supposed to be fighting with everybody and giving up my life f for this? And it's and and oftentimes it's a yes, but um, it comes with that caveat. Yeah, um, I just want to say one thing on on sort of, you know, failure is okay. Um, you know, I, I think that I've seen most people who have gone and tried to build a startup and they've failed up. So they found a better job after they have more perspective. And I also just want to say like this, this speaks to both the next point I'm about to make. It speaks both to the difficulty of building a startup, but also why failure is still kind of the default. And you know, I think that it will always be the default because changing the status quo is really, really difficult. Most people out there that, you know, make anywhere from fifty to one hundred and fifty thousand dollars and have a family and kids, like they don't want to go try something different. They don't want to, you know, use new technology. They build a life, and inertia is so difficult to change, and people are so hard to change their habits. But that being said, I think that when it comes to failure, two examples that I look to. Um, are Jack Dorsey with Blue Sky and Threads. Um, you're talking about organizations. You're talking about Jack Dorsey, who ran Twitter, who was the CEO, who built it from, you know, a, a small app that had some traction to a massive organization that gets sold for $50 billion, right? He quits, and with billions of dollars at his disposal, goes and tries to build a social media site, and guess what? He fails, Threads, who has already account creation built into Instagram and billions of dollars at their disposal and a marketing push and all of the timing and knowledge in the world about consumer behavior can't get people to use their app. Failure. And so it's like when we talk about failure, like that is the default and it will always be the default. And I think that, that I'm really impressed by the people in the U.S. and around the world that sort of adopt this sort of U.S. mentality, which is like, I'm going to go spend a bunch of money on this idea and I'm going to go try to build something even though that they know failure is likely. And so I think that 
you know, you're better for it on the other side as long as you were being scrutinous and you were approaching things intelligently and you reached out and you were vulnerable and you were open to criticism and you were self-aware. If you do all those things, spend a lot of money, time, effort, and still fail, like, I'm not going to view you as an idiot. And I, I think that a lot of people in the startup space just know that they'll take the founder who has one failure under their belt over the founders who's never tried, uh, you know, almost every scenario. And I, and I think that's an important thing to bring up is potentially a litmus test for like being an entrepreneur is I think you have to find a deeper meaning outside of just your idea for why you're doing what you're doing. Because to navigate the failure, to navigate the adversity of um, what you're doing, you have to have a deeper sense of purpose. And so it just can't be like, I want to start a cookie company and I'm really passionate about you know, cookies and because they taste good. It's like you have to find, um, you know, something that drives you. And it doesn't necessarily have to be around the idea. You know, there's plenty of other reasons, you know, people, there's plenty of reasons why pe people are driven to do things. And it's like you have to find that deeper sense of purpose to push through those those moments. And so if you don't have that deeper sense of purpose or like what you're doing hasn't, you know, inspired that, like you kind of have to question, you know, what is, what is the reasoning for you, you doing it? Because it's going to get hard and it's mostly going to be hard. And there's always going to be adversity. So I think you always have to find that, that's, that sort of deeper sense there. And I, I want to just um, tack something onto that. So one of the tactics that I came up with for all founders out there is every time you bring somebody on, um, they're almost always taking a pay cut, holding onto a lottery ticket, which is equity in your company. But one of the tactics that I came up with that you know, it, it's kind of like that, that marriage tactic where you, you get a bottle of wine. But the idea is this. Uh, when you bring on somebody new to the company, whether it's an intern or a co-founder or even an investor, have them record a two- to three-minute video as to why they joined this company and why, what problem you're trying to solve or how you're trying to change the world or what you're trying to do with this startup. And then the idea is that when you feel like they're at their lowest point and all of that initial, you know, excitement and energy that comes from starting something, it will fade. Um, but when they're at, you think their lowest point or they're in a lull, tell them to take Friday off, send a bottle of wine to their house and have them watch that video Sunday night. So they come in Monday morning refreshed and energized. And I, I think too, that it's so easy to get lost when you're building because your hair's on fire. You know, Rob and I are trying to answer a thousand emails a day. We're working with all kinds of different people and you know, it's really, really easy to the second that you're done working just to like want to forget about it entirely. Um, so I think that reflection becomes really difficult when you're building, when your head's down building. But if you can take those moments to appreciate and remember why you did this in the first place, uh, it goes a long way. That's awesome advice. And I'll just throw one other thing out there. Entrepreneurship is lonely. Yep. So build a network of other entrepreneurs and founders that you can talk to, right? Just talk to them. Yeah, I don't think it should be a lonely process. That's kind of why we started this. It's like, I think because it's highly competitive too. Like I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that. You know, I, I played sports most of my, my life, and my, and I, I come from a family of six brothers and sisters, and it's like, you know, we are very competitive. And I think this is somewhat the entrepreneurial space to some degree. Um, that you you want to succeed and you want to potentially do better than you know the people in your your market or whatever it is and so this and it's usually the the one founder that gets the funding and the one founder that doesn't and so it's it's very much separated um, and it I think it sort of bred this this loneliness thing and that that's kind of part of the reason we we started this is and and we said that like you don't have to do this alone. 
um, because and you can learn from each other too. You can learn from your failures. You can learn through that. You know, shared pain. Like I said earlier, um, I think is is vastly vastly important. So we're going to wrap up with just a couple more questions. Um, what's one piece of advice you get you give to founders that um, that are struggling to find traction? Persevere is is the first one. Yeah, be willing to pivot when you're you you need to pivot. Um, and, you know, be, be open. I think a lot of founders, uh, get too attached to their baby and your baby might be ugly and you, you, you might need to, you know, f- figure something else out. Right. And so it, do, and I guess the one thing too, is don't stay stagnant. Don't stay stagnant in, in what you're developing. Continue to iterate, continue to just take one step forward, even if it's a stupid idea even if it's, you know, whatever it is, continue to just keep moving forward because from that, that moving forward, you, you develop, you know, different iterations, different ideas, different traction. You might find, you know, like, like Pinterest, your, your target audience in the early stages is women in their 30s, bloggers. And so, like, don't say stagnant in your di- idea and continue just to, you know, try to throw things at the wall that stick. And if you keep pushing, eventually, you know, something will come from it. Um, I would say self-awareness is the number one thing that I, is a trait in founders, which is the right amount, right? You don't want to be so self-aware that you're like insecure about it. And you take the most recent advice and just run with that. Cause then you won't have, you won't be headstrong enough. Uh, and if you lack self-awareness, you can really feel that in founders. So make sure that, you know, you can recognize yourself in a mirror is, is the joke I always make. Um, I think that the other one too is have backup plans cause things aren't going to go your way. So have other kind of features that you think might make a difference. But the biggest thing of all is go after problems that are wide and deep. Um, if you build a mediocre solution to a really hard problem, you can get people to use it. But if you build a, a perfect problem, a perfect solution to an only kind of a problem, you're not going to get people to use it. And so, you know, Rob's heard me say this analogy a thousand times, but people are always like, good ideas are painkillers, not vitamins. But I take it a step further, which is your first thousand users are going to be the ones who are you know, have a stab wound and are bleeding out from what they're struggling with. And if you can go ahead and do something to help, whether it's, you know, an, your app or your product or whatever it might be, um, that is how you're going to get adoption. And so I think that it's just really important to make sure you're finding those things. All right. Final question. This is a, this is, this is a tough one. Where can our listeners find you to? Social media, websites, is this like the podcast part where I'm supposed to hook everything and I'm not good at this? Um, LiterallyHelpingStartups.com. Um, Johnny and I are both on LinkedIn. Johnny Boyarski, Robert McIntosh. Um, I don't really use Instagram where I would I would post that. I mean, I have an Instagram, but I just don't post any photos. So um, what else? What else can I hook? Um, I'm going to tell people not to follow me on Instagram, although it is public. So if you want to want to see my unhinged content, there's some great. Oh, stuff. I, I'm on it now. Right after this is over. <laughs> he, he has a real like uh, he should have like a million followers because it's uh, pretty <laughs> genius stuff that he, he posts. It's, so. uh, it's a lot of satire, which is a, a person, a part of my personality that pretty much never comes through in my work, uh, you know, occasionally with little little chiding comments here. But yeah, follow me on, on LinkedIn. Uh, I post a lot. Uh, and one other piece of advice that I want to just give before speaking of followings, um, build the audience before you need it. Um, it's one of the things that people who try to raise crowdfunding rounds or try to launch companies don't always realize is you should be able to be the thought leader in your space. 
uh, and speak to your customer and build out a community and build out people that care about what you're building um, before you need to use it. And so that, that's kind of one thing that I've been trying to really do uh, with LinkedIn uh, and soon, you know, X, formerly known as Twitter uh, as well. So be on the lookout. Um, but yeah, follow us on LinkedIn and, and reach out. We really will meet with any founder. Um, so, you know, anybody out there who's a, a budding entrepreneur, you know, don't think that we're those unattainable podcast guests. We are still at the point where we're meeting with everyone. I, I will echo that. The, these two are incredibly generous with their time and I always appreciate it. So, uh, Rob and Johnny, you, this was awesome. You two did not disappoint. I thank you for, uh, dropping some, uh, really interesting knowledge on our audience and, I'm, I'm a little smarter uh, over the, from the past hour, half hour. So uh, thank you both very much. Awesome. Thanks, Josh. The Entrepreneurship at DU podcast was recorded in Marjorie Reed Hall on the University of Denver campus. You can find us on Instagram at DU Entrepreneur, on Twitter X at DU underscore Entrepreneur, and on Facebook at Entrepreneurship at DU. This episode was edited, engineered, and produced by Sophia Holt. Entrepreneurship at DU is part of the Daniels College of Business, which has its own podcasts. Check out Voices of Experience wherever you get your podcasts.